1: Hello, everyone. I'm happy to welcome tonight to the program poet Wayne David Hubbard. He's here for your quintessential listening poetry pleasure. David's work includes poetry, essays, and short stories. His literary work suggests topics in science, philosophy, history, and culture that span the Americas, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. David's debut poetry collection, Death Throws of the Broken Clockwork Universe, depicts journeys through physical space as well as abstract emotional realms. David, welcome to the program. Wayne David, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, how are you? Thank you very much for having (laughs) me on today. I'm very excited.
0: Okay. I'm excited, too, as you can tell. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. (laughs) I mean...
1: Wow. I mean, what you write about is incredible. I mean, the, the the topics that you cover.
2: Yeah, I have a lot of different interests, <laughs> and I sit down and I do overthink things, but uh, I think uh, writing helps me get some structure to it, and, and mm-hmm. I have a collection of poems that uh, explore
1: a lot of different things, so this will be a lot of fun to uh, unpack. Yes, Yes. Well, let's begin this journey, this poetic journey. What is poetry? What is poetry? This is an impossible question.
2: I do want to say that. However, <laughs> right. I have given it a lot of thought, and the closest that uh, poetry means to me is, is music. It's the closest thing that I can grasp and relate to. And In, insofar as we're talking about language, I think we're talking about word music. When I write poetry, I don't necessarily think about the words themselves. I do try to tap into the current or the flow of whatever that feeling or image is that I'm trying to express. And sometimes words are almost like an afterthought. Of course, I'm not really sure what I have in my hands until after I I sit with it for a while and maybe reshape and revise. But, um, poetry gets to something very deep and personal, also universal and human. And wherever the intersection is between language and silence, I think poetry lives there, although I don't really even understand what I just said. I just know it's, it's somewhere in that vicinity. <laughs>
1: <to be honest. laughs> All right. <laughs> well, you know, I never understand what I say, so
0: you're in good company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: All right. As we think about what we do as poets, Wayne David, why is poetry important?
2: Why is poetry important? Mm-hmm. I think poetry is something that we can't get away from. Uh, It's been part of our human story since uh, the beginning of, of time, if one could even make such a claim. Written language, even before that, it was oral tradition, oral history, and that is what was passed from person to person and community to community. And I think there's a continuity in poetry that connects us to that, heritage or that origin, Uh, even if, uh, you know, many of the ancient languages are lost, I think, um, many of the same ideas and themes and human emotions and experiences are still alive in us today and poetry helps us to be in touch with that. There aren't many things that I can think of that can replace poetry or get to that level besides music again. And even right. music has been through a lot of different changes over eras and time There's periods and places.
1: That's What I'd like you to do for me is please share why your first poetic experience, how did that shape you?
2: My first poetic experience?
1: Yes. Let me, let me, let me phrase it this way. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power?
2: The experiences that stand out most to me come from growing up in the church uh, as a kid and listening to stories from the Bible. I think I was always a kid with a very active imagination, and uh, many of the renderings that I heard and the stories and events really came alive for me in a palpable and visceral way. Um, And with that, um, I I really can't cite a specific instance, but (laughs) I mean, we could start with Genesis. And that whole phrase of let there be light, I think in my mind, it was kind of like a little starburst. in in my Mm -hmm. young uh, childhood imagination, trying Mm -hmm. to uh, encapsulate what that might have looked like and felt like. And, um, so I can't think of anything earlier than that. There were definitely other instances that Mm -hmm. kicked in more as an adult, uh, because for a long time I was in denial about poetry. I didn't really think that the poetry was something that was for me. Yes. And I kind of came into poetry uh, through the side door. Like it, it wasn't something that I studied, something that I thought was uh, something that guys do, if I'm honest. I did have a, a bit of a, a rigid mindset. Um, yes. But yes. Um, if I can tell one short story of a of moment. Yes. I grew up in New Jersey, left home to join the Marine Corps, and found myself in Iraq in 2004. And then several years later, uh, trying to make sense of that experience, I began listening to poetry podcasts in secret. And um, one of the podcasts I found myself listening to was uh, engagement of uh, John Littegow and Bill Moyer. And so the Iraq war was at its height, and they were both discussing uh, a poem for World War II called The Death of the Fall for Gunner. And the rendering of this poem was so powerful that by the end of it, both the men were in tears and I was, I was too. And that was one of the first adult moments where I connected with poetry in an intensely personal way. Uh, From there, I had another profound moment when I was actually caught in my secret love of poetry by the local librarian uh, where I live in Winchester, Virginia. Uh, We have a beautiful library called the Henry Library. And uh, I would go in there and grab stacks of books on different topics, uh, science, uh, history, self-help, or even just um, basic craftsmanship. But I would slip books of poetry in between and – you would hand the books to the librarian and they would scan them one by one through the machine nowadays a lot of that is automated but um the librarian and I we exchanged our usual greetings i had a book uh, by Octavio paz called the double Flame* that was hidden in that stack and the librarian very quietly scanned the book and placed it at the top of the pile and looked at me and said, have a nice day. And in that moment, I kind of knew that I was caught. I was busted. And what I took away from that was that uh, it was okay. I I remember after that day being much more comfortable and a little bit more open about poetry and uh, that
1: was a turning point for me. All right. So how do you feel now about poetry? You've come a long way. Where are you now?
2: Well, poetry is something that uh, I have as part of my daily life. I I read poems every day, and, again, it's like listening to music. Uh, Music is another thing that I I really can't get enough of. Uh, I listen to it every opportunity I get and all different kinds of music. So it grounds me, it keeps me connected to the things that are going on inside of me, things that are happening in the world. And also, perhaps my favorite thing about poetry is that it's constantly giving me and ideas that I would have never gotten to on my own. And I I do believe we're, we're living in such a rich period where we have the availability of poems from all all different cultures, experiences all over the world, uh, even in translations that that um, oh, I can never get bored. I can never seem to uh, to get enough. So it wasn't part of the plan. I do want to say that I never set out <laughs> that I was going to be a poet and I was going to fall in love with this stuff. But it's, it's right. definitely uh, taken hold of me.
1: Well, maybe poetry was searching for you, and it finally found you.
2: I would concur. And were ready.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you were ready to embrace it. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. Your book, Death Throes of the Broken Clockwork Universe. What inspired it, my friend? The collection itself
2: was never really intended to be a collection. Um, it's, These poems have been written over a 10-year period and maybe even a little bit longer. Um, But it began as just writing. I always saw writing as, as my voice. I was not a really talkative kid growing up, and even as an adult, I'm more prone to listen than to speak. But when it comes to putting a pen on paper, I've always found that being the right modulation of what I'm feeling and thinking and the words just appearing in the right place at the right time. And what I found is, as I went through a lot of different experiences, I would leave behind these short snapshots of of places and memories and people that I later on, once I started to embrace poetry, realized that these were poems. The pandemic has a big part of how all this came about because much of my writing was sitting in files and I was in a cycle of writing and revising and writing and revising. And, and when the pandemic came about, I did uh, publish my first book, uh, which is called Mobius meditations on home. And I had written that manuscript in uh, 2019. And my purpose in that manuscript was to try to answer the question. How do you know when you are home? And uh, what came out of that was a uh, collection of prose and poetry that explored what it feels like to be home and also what the journey of home is like. And the irony was that I wrote that in 2019 and in 2020, we were in a pandemic where the entire world was literally home. And so... um, one thing led to another and it was self-published and it was actually a really great moment in healing for myself and, and a lot of other people through all the things that were going on.
1: I'd like you to share a poll.
2: Certainly. Uh, the first poem that I would like to share is a poem called Columbia. I wrote this poem in 2019 in Washington, DC on New Jersey Avenue. I remember the exact place that I began drafting it and it explored several things. One, the importance and the weight and the gravity of, of DC and politics and the way that the decisions that happen there shape our lives. But the title, Columbia, specifically references the statue at the top of the Capitol building, which was cast by enslaved men. And that story is told in the National Archives in D.C. And I was reflecting on this and many other things, and um, I'll go into the poem called Columbia. Capitol Hill, rights of empire, suffering in stone, shaping a consortium of one, feet by feet, by feet. Capitol Fantasy, language for hire, and a little blue flag, still things, still lives waiting to rise unlike anything ever seen before.
1: Thank you. Wow. I think I'd like you to share that again. The first time I'm just settling in and the second time I'll be able to really listen,
0: please
2: share it again. Most certainly. Columbia, Capitol Hill rights of empire, suffering in stone, shaping a consortium of one, beat by beat by beat, capital fantasy, language for hire, and a little blue flag. Still things, still lives, waiting to rise, unlike anything ever seen before. Thank
1: you. Your book, the title of it, Death Throws of the Broken Clockwork Universe, is quite striking. Tell me about titling the book. Thank you for that question.
2: The title of the book came from a poem from a poet who I I don't remember. And the phrase that they had said very explicitly is that the clockwork universe is dead. Hmm. And I found that very interesting and and thought-provoking. I read this poem maybe seven years ago and that line stood out to me. And at the time I was also reading a lot of science and seeing how ideas of the universe and, and people's place in it have evolved over time. And I thought, what a audacious and a direct thing to say Seeing as though, maybe that should have been known a long time ago. Why would a poet say that now? And then I started to think a little bit more deeply about this. And I, I asked myself, a broken clockwork universe, what would that sound like? And I thought about that for a long time. And then I asked myself, what would that feel like? And somewhere inside me, I said, I, I know what that feels like. I've been there. And that image and that imagery stuck with me. I think also the title and that phrase speaks a lot to our ideas and change in change and time. Uh, it's often commented how much times are changing, how quickly they're changing. And with this constant change, as exciting as it is and as dynamic as it is. Sometimes there's a sense of loss that we struggle to articulate and it happens so quickly that we don't even have time to grieve before the change comes again. Somewhere in there, this title, Death Roads of the Brock, uh, Broken Clockwork Universe, I, I think gets to that. that uh, so this is the closest that I've been able to manage, I think.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Like I said again, It it, it jumps out at you, and I feel that's what a book title should do, make you want to read it. What's inside it? What's inside it? All right. I'd like to know about the cover of the book now. Tell me, what was the process to create the cover?
2: Uh, The cover came about through – this is a very deep image, actually. <laughs> oh, right. It's right. hard to know where to even start. There's oh, the element okay. of time, and we can start with time.
0: The oh, like book
2: this. is divided in uh, two parts. The first part of the book is called The Time Studies, and the second part is called The Love Studies. And the poems therein speak to meditations and reflections on time and love very specifically and the time portion it's more tied uh, to place and uh, maybe some physical geographic places but also there's the uh, metaphoric and emotional place as well the other part of the image is this squid octopus looking creature which um In my mind, it's, it's something like a, a Leviathan. It's, it's a mythical and deep and murky, and it has this tentacle about in all directions. Uh, I'm not sure why, but that image uh, really arrested me. And there's some other poems that I've been trying to write around this called American Leviathan that, that gets to it, but I, I haven't been successful yet. Of course, it's a pretty interesting place to put this on the backdrop of outer space and uh, the stars. And astronomy and reflections of time and space are a constant thread throughout the book uh, from front to back for a few reasons. um, Astronomy is an endlessly fascinating topic to me. And of course, uh, poets have been writing about the heavens since Gilgamesh uh before the bible and in doing so uh they've raised a lot of questions on the nature of time and the power of love and so the combination of these three images gets to it in perhaps uh, a com uh, an unconventional way and i think that is my answer
0: all right <laughs> okay <laughs> <All right. laughs> my don't ask me, <laughs> don't okay. ask me to repeat what you said
1: Please <laughs> don't ask me to repeat What you said Oh, Please don't Please don't uh, <laughs> Please share another poll <laughs> Please
2: share another poll <laughs> Oh certainly Let's see uh, One of my favorite poems In this book is called The Rebellion of Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus is the ancient hero, the uh, half-God, half-man, who was condemned to push a rock uphill for eternity. And this was in punishment for a trick that Sisyphus played in trying to obtain immortality and, and um, pretty much getting away with it. Uh, this myth has fascinated me as well, and has a very deep philosophy that I also found haunting ever since I first heard this story from a teacher in elementary school. Uh, when I became an adult, it was, uh, the philosopher Albert Camus who wrote essays on Sisyphus and Mm -hmm. taught me how to contend with this reality. Uh, this portrait of, uh, continuously pushing and working and, and at times maybe feeling like um, where is all this going and what's the end in sight uh, but uh, in this poem it's very short and this is the rebellion of Sisyphus at first the stones would not speak to me on my last push they wept that I would stay only those who chained death Can guess how I reached The other side
1: Thank you You know that was so deep I need to hear it twice sooner. man Please <laughs> Let me hear it twice <laughs>
0: Yes uh, there's,
2: there's so much that can be said About the And perhaps this poem too it, uh, mm-hmm. It sometimes gives me chills when I read it. Um, The Rebellion of Sisyphus. Okay. At first, the stones would not speak to me. On my last push, they wept that I would stay. Only those who chain death can guess how I reached the other side. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you. The reason that I really wanted to hear it twice is that I also wrote a poem about Sisyphus. Mm. And, uh, yes, the myth of Sisyphus, I read the works of Albert Camus, and the title of the poem mm. is Albert and Sisyphus. So as you talked about those rocks that really struck me, it made me think about my own work. See, we already have a bond that you would have never known. Oh, yes. The work. Yes. That's why we're here. Yes, exactly right. All right. You know, as you think about writing, how does a poem begin for you with an idea, a form, or an image?
2: For me, I... I think definitely an image. Many of my poems are image driven and image specific, and that's with intention. Because I'm trying to relay the image as clearly as I see it in my mind's eye. And this can be quite difficult. The form is sometimes an afterthought. In fact, uh, as I've mentioned, I come, I, I came in through poetry, uh, not necessarily through studying it, uh, I learned and I'm still learning about form and how form and structure can help carry, uh, the image and carry the meaning in more intentional ways. So I feel like I have a lot more to learn about the form itself. The reality though, sometimes it really feels like a mess. <laughs> I have a very simple process of getting a white sheet of, of paper and a pen and, uh, sometimes almost daydreaming, uh, on paper. And then I may have to leave it there for a couple of days or sometimes even six months before I realize that there's something worthy that can be developed further
0: mm-hmm.
2: a few times. So the poems have come very lucidly, clearly and directly, and those are very powerful. Uh, moments when that does happen, where it seems like from beginning to end, the images and the meaning and the feelings that I want to carry throughout are all there. I don't have to search anywhere. I don't have to second guess. Uh, Everything that I'm looking for is there. And uh, that is the general process of, of how I write poetry.
1: I'd like you to share with me the titles of five of the poems in your book. Just five poems, just randomly choose five. Will do. The first
2: one would be In a Time-Lapse. Next would be Aria Number 7. Another one would be World Without Genopides. Another one would be Notes to a Young Poet. Let's see, hmm, the last one
1: would be Watch. All right, varied titles. What role, when David, should a title play for a poem? What should be considered when you're titling a poem?
2: This is a great question and something that I've learned about through the help of other poets because I initially did not give much thought to the way that poems were titled, I tend to get hyper-focused on things and so I would just deep dive and get lost in the creation of the poem itself and everything else would be an afterthought. But what I've learned is the title of the poem can act as a signal of direction and intention for where the reader is going once they take the journey of the poem. And I I do see all of the poems that I write as journeys. And then also the poem title can be a container of meaning itself that can amplify the contents of the poem and uh, perhaps in a very powerful or meaningful poem, the poem title itself can, can convey that uh, on its own. So that's how I think about uh, poem titles. Usually that's the last thing that comes together when I do write the poem.
1: Okay, okay. Now, if you were in a bookstore and someone was choosing your book, all right, what piece of advice would you give them prior to reading it, if there's any advice? I like this question. <laughs> See, that's why they paid me the big bucks <laughs> to ask the questions that the people <laughs>
0: want to know yeah, about. Yeah, this That's my job. Well,
2: the answer that comes to mind is let the poems guide you. The ways that poems work on me, I I never really know what I'm getting into quite. But uh, often, uh, the poems and the poetry that I really like remind me of elements and memories and feelings and relationships in my own life that have meaning and value to me. And so the place to revisit and touch that, even though the poem that I could be reading could be written by someone on the other side of the world writing about a time or a place that I'll never see. And I believe that's really the beauty and the mystery of poetry. Uh, another thing that I would say is um, in this book, I gave thought to readers who may not see themselves as poetry readers because for a long time I didn't see myself as a poetry reader. So I intentionally wrote certain poems in an open way and in a plain way at the risk of even being boring in some parts because I wanted the elements and the messages to be clear. Um, there's other ways that I can write poems, and there's a couple in here that are very opaque and maybe hard to follow, but on the whole of the collection, I did want people who maybe don't normally read poetry to feel like there was something in this book for them. All
1: right, Very nice. It took time to write the book. Am I correct? Yes. To bring it all together. What do you think you learned about yourself at the completion of the book? When it's published, from start to finish, what did you learn about yourself?
2: I knew that I had it in me. <laughs>
0: okay. I just didn't know how. All right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs>
2: Yes, you had it, and I mean yes, this is a used. deep knowing. I mean it took a long time for me to have a lot, of, uh, some confidence to let other people see what I was doing,
0: and even mm-hmm. now I
2: get greenish. <laughs> even yeah. now I have.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> maybe that
2: never goes away.
0: there uh, well, there's a few
2: good. poems. <laughs> oh, there's a few that I, when I was writing them, usually like two a.m. Mm-hmm. I thought this is, this is a. This is the work of a a person that is not grounded. Like if someone's going to read this and they're going to think that, um, you know, what's wrong with you? Uh, But over time, you know, I've come to embrace it. This is the creative process as well. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: uh, what surprised me as other people started to see and read and respond was that uh, the things that I thought were crazy and out there really weren't that crazy or out there, like these were experiences that other people had and moments that they could connect with. And once I started to see that response, that made me think, oh, wow, there might
1: really be something here. Mm-hmm. Let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Wayne David Hubbard. Please share a poem. Certainly,
2: I will read the poem, A uh, World Without Pities." Uh, that is a famous song by the composer, Eric Satie. I wrote this poem in 2021 in response to a story that a friend had told me. In fact, I haven't told this friend that I've written this poem. Uh, The story is that uh, she listened to the music of Eric Southey as a girl and loved it. And she never learned who the composer was or what the music was. Then 40 years later, during the pandemic, she hears the song again, and she instantly recognizes it, and it moves her so much that through the pandemic, she learns how to play the piano so that she can play the song as a way of being closer to it, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful <laughs> stories I've ever heard. All right. So much so that I wish I could take a picture of it because it was such a beautiful moment hearing the story and so uh, the best best that I could do was write a poem Um, so I'll read a world without jimlo pities her ache a run-on sentence beginning like forgive me God for ever taking sassy for granted his question I made a mistake. Let me start over. Her ache, a run-on sentence, beginning like, forgive me, God, for ever taking Sauti for granted. His song, a question, circling like, "What does language cannot teach us anything? Play again her childhood song, coming home like, memories void from sleep to pitch to ink
1: or joyful tears blurring the notes of sheet music. Role, does emotion play in your poems?
2: Emotion is the main current of the journey in the poem. I had the perhaps a difficult relationship with my own emotions too. a lot of my life. I was afraid of them. I didn't like them. Uh, I joined the Marines. I was quite a stoic person for many years of my life. And I think there were very good reasons for that. Very necessary reasons for that, especially given my service and the things that I experienced in war. And perhaps it's not surprising that writing was my voice and my way of getting a channel for those emotions. Again, I, I didn't think I was writing poems, and I didn't think that it was going to turn into anything, but I did recognize that this is a way to get it out because it was much too much to carry, and at least writing would, would bring me relief. And so um, specifically with poetry, Emotion is the journey of those ups and downs, those moments of surprise, anger, ecstasy. And what I've learned is that uh, everything is on the table and is acceptable. Uh, I've learned uh, as a person and as a writer that I don't have to be afraid of, of any emotion. It's just a part of my experience, and what I do with that emotion is what's most important. So this is something that I'm constantly working on as a person, and as I write, I I do really connect with that emotion
1: and, and let it carry us where it, where it will. All right. Do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? I don't know. I honestly do not know.
2: Um, first, I <laughs> I would hesitate to uh, to call anyone a poet or not a poet. Uh, right. In fact, I, I have doubts about calling myself a poet. Uh, I understand. But um, you know how we how we get there. Uh, what poetry is to each person is, is of course, different and individual and, and specific. For example, um, I've always really enjoyed uh, slam poetry. Yes. Except I only wrote one slam poem in my entire life, and it All was right. such a powerful experience. I, I I've never did it again, actually. <laughs> However, I do enjoy listening to slam poetry and. Mm-hmm. And that is a form where the emotion is, is very strong and mm-hmm. very, uh, uh, but also there are perhaps, uh, older forms of poetry where it's not as emotionally expressive, much more metered, uh, dictated and specific, but yet the emotion is there. Uh, it's just not the central thrust and yet, uh, they can carry wonderful meaning. And, and expand, uh, at least for me, my sense of of who I am and and the importance and the significance of this life journey. So, um, you know, how how a poet gets there, I think, is entirely up to them.
1: Did you bring the slam poem with you?
2: Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> no, actually, it's a long it's a long slam poem. It it, it it's several minutes long.
0: I'll have to All dig right. it up,
2: but uh, <laughs> let's see. I, I do have a portion of it, actually, because I included All it right. in my book, uh, Okay, great, great. <laughs> you see how things work. All right. Yeah, yeah it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it. So, again, uh, Mobius was an attempt to answer the question of how do you know when you are home? And the slam poem was that experience of everything that I wanted to say being in one fell swoop. And it was very, it was almost electric to write. Uh, but here's the portion that, that I realized years later was an attempt to answer that question. And the name of this lamp poem is called finale. I wrote it in November, 2013.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All great stories are about home. There has never been a great story that was not about home. Every great thing that ever happened in a life was about home. Maybe not home, but always about home. Going home, finding home, being home, losing home, dying to be home, a cry for home, a search for home, a call from home, a home in heaven, a home on earth, a home away from home, and always coming home. When I grow up, I want to go home. Thank you. Wow.
1: And home means so many different things to different people. Does it hurt you, Wayne David, to write poetry? If not, why not?
2: This is a question I... Hmm.
1: The answer is yes. Okay. The Tell answer me is more. Yes. Tell me more. Hmm.
2: I think it gets to the intersection of art and opening to that core of what makes me me. Mm -hmm. And in that, I don't think I ever have the full understanding as to what's happening uh, when I'm in the process of creating. But I do know that when I'm being honest and I am connecting to the places where it hurts The meaning and the core of what I really am trying to express is there. But it takes courage to go there. This also happens to me through painting. Um, It's Mm a very experience. I started painting also during the
0: pandemic and I'm
2: definitely not very skilled. But Mm -hmm. uh, when I pick up the paintbrush and it connects with the canvas, it's a powerful experience. It's quite visceral. Um, I'm sure. You know, it's that idea that I have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. always know what image is going to come out. I don't know what the finished product is going to look like. And in that moment, in, in that moment, I, I, I have learned that it's important to not care,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and to just let it come. And so, wow. Um, ah. Yeah, that part, uh, it's pretty intense. I wouldn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's certain things I say. <laughs> Writing is intense <laughs> for me anyway. I, I I don't recommend it for everyone. I just uh right. I feel like if you can All play right. music, if you can do something else, if, if that's your way to get there, then maybe that's the path. Um it's hard work sometimes. And uh Yes it is. Yeah, you know, it takes you to places that you don't expect. However, it never takes you there in vain. Um, even if it takes a long time to understand what's at the core of, of what's driving it. And uh, almost always I look back at some point and say, I'm really glad that happened.
1: Wow. That's very nice. Very, very nice. Poetry, to me, is so freeing. When I share a poem, Wayne David, to me it's like I'm in my true essence. No one can hurt me. No one can bother me. The world is mine. I'm a performance poet. And uh, it's only when I come out of that, that, that trance that I'm back to normal where I'm feeling vulnerable again. But when I'm mm-hmm. in it, I'm in it to win it. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and it sounds like you're potentially where you need to be in terms of your, I'm going to say, growth and development in terms of what poetry is and what it's not. That it doesn't have to be just one way. And it's all right to hurt when you write. It's all right. Yes. I want you to tell me about a poem. You were proud of writing, but were afraid to share for fear of misinterpretation. That's
2: a great question. I'm looking at several. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, one poem scared me quite a bit. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I wrote it during twenty in 2020, mm-hmm. and I wrote it on May ninth, I believe, 2020. I'll have to double check the date. This was in response to the killing of Ahmad Aubrey, and um, little did we know. A couple of weeks later, it would be George Floyd, and the rest of history would follow.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But The name of this poem is called Solus, S-O-L-U-S, and It was written deep at night trying to understand what was happening, not knowing what was coming, Mm -hmm. thinking also of the heritage that I come from as an African-American family that has been in this country supporting this nation from at least the time of George Washington that I can trace and trying to understand how does how do free people remain free in the face of this explicit violence intended for the exact opposite? Now, of course, I wasn't aware of all this at the time, but uh,
0: this is the poem, mm-hmm. so it begins right. with
2: uh, aphor- aphorism from uh, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche Beyond Good and Evil, Aphorism 146, where he states, And when you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. This somnolent night, we sleep with doors open. When the void stares back, we do not stir. Our body as solace our shadow, the empire, our hope, the color of fire.
1: Thank you. Wow. I'm going to take a second to allow it to work its way through my system. You know, there is so much happening in this world and you've potentially seen more of it than a lot of people through your travels, through what you've been, what you've experienced. You know, there's the good, the bad, the ugly, and the indifferent. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? This is a great question, one that I
2: believe I will probably be attempting to answer, uh, throughout my life. Should I continue to write poetry? I, mean, I have reasonable expectation that I will continue to write poetry. Yeah, I think, so. I think uh, the role role of the poet to be aligned with the role of an artist. And I think that's to be an interpreter of the meaning of our times in that moment, as best we can. Capturing this through our art and through our skills and ability The Irony and perhaps the The mystery of it is that often One doesn't realize whether or not You're catching it correctly and even think about the times that we've been through It's so much and it's so fast and it's so deep that we are not going to be able to understand what it meant until decades from now. So like it's 2022, we have no way of understanding what 2020 meant, I think, until maybe 2040. Then we'll look back and we'll say, oh, that is the moment where everything changed. And these are the changes and these are why. And, and by then, there will be perhaps a lineage or some kind of coherence that we make out of everything that's happening at that point. But a poet doesn't have to wait that long, <laughs> oh,
0: right. Right. and an artist
2: doesn't have to wait that long. And so mm-hmm. um, there's a mystery in it, but I think that's that's the role if if one chooses to accept that as yes. as an accessible answer. It's yes. Definitely not easy. You know, maybe it's a little lofty, but that's where we are.
1: No, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy putting yourself out there, mm-hmm. saying what needs to be said. Well, wow. we've reached a point in the program, Wayne David, that is my favorite piece. I call it a mini, M-I-N-I, poetry concert. This is where you share three or four poems back-to-back with no interruptions from me, no questions, just three or four poems. That's it. The stage is yours. Thank you.
2: So the four poems that I would like to read would come from the Love Studies, part two of the collections and death roads of the broken clockwork universe, where in each poem love in its various forms and various stages are the theme. The first poem I would like to share is called Love Poem for Sappho. Sappho is the Greek poet. Um, immortal, in my opinion, and someone who I have fallen—I have fallen in love with. She has a line in one of her lyrics; uh, it's now very famous and popular. But I imagine what it must have sounded like when it first was said, when she said, "I, I tell you, in another lifetime, someone will remember us." And one night, I was thinking about Sapo, and those lines. And I asked myself, what would I say to Sappho if I could right now? And uh, the poem that eventually developed was called Love Poem for Sappho. When they ask what it was like, we will say, we lived in a lighthouse with 19 million windows and danced through the sea without a face. The gods will never believe. We fooled them into venerating us. Thank you. The next poem that I would like to read, two of them, come from a series called the Arias, A-R-I-A. Aria being the solo opera singing uh, that is, of course, quite famous and popular. But these uh, lyric poems, I've always imagined could be read out loud. They could be read silently, or maybe they could be set to music. I've never tried that, but uh, this is kind of how I answered many of these poems. They're very short, uh, yet there's a lot of movement in between. I'll read, uh, two of the arias, uh, my favorites, perhaps, uh, aria number four. And because it's so fast, I'll maybe point out a few things that um, maybe missed. A portion of this poem is an ode to Walt Whitman and his poem "Song of the Answer uh, "Song of the Answerer," which is a favorite of mine. Uh, but also in this poem is the imagery of astronomy and maybe some advances in science that happened in astronomy in recent years. Aria number four. You dream life into truth. Imagine me, electric, in universe, parallel. For you, my equal, appearing and new. I hold in my attitude the favor of nations. I consume dark matter and roar stars. Aria number seven. What need have we of new days? We derelicts of now, what can tomorrow do for us Bite this truth? Embrace no matter the cost. My name as it leaves your lung, most sweet, bitter wound this tongue. Last poem I'll read is called uh, Notes to a Young Poet. This is a poem that was a collection of lines that literally did take about a decade to coalesce. Especially the first stanza was an image and an idea that I thought about very frequently. Uh, This is a poem that I realized later on I wrote to myself Years ago, when I was shy about poetry and shy about writing poetry and knowing what I know now, I I came to understand that this was the poem, the message of what I would have told myself knowing then, knowing now what I, well, you get what I mean. (laughs) Note to a young poet. You are a kernel of an unrepeatable expression in the history a world follow the dark star between being awake and dreaming you are awake the diamonds are hidden love will break you up through that concrete leave you askance, yet priceless you are not fine wine you are not brass nor wood what you are, money cannot buy. Hide the censor give the rest away. Be mindful of this, only the living are dying. If they howl to scrape your bones, howl with them. Go forward now, no matter how you arrive, awaiting in vain that tepid rapture. Interpretation is half the beauty, the other half is you. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Wow. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it. How others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. You've written a book. You write poems. What is your take on the editing process? Oh,
2: my. I would still be editing some of these poems if I hadn't <laughs> had the kind help of uh, friends and editors and and other poets pushing me over the finish line. I, I feel very much that some of these poems, even though in print there's staying still, perhaps in my mind, they're still moving around and, and, um, however, I'm happy with the final state, uh, went through relentless revisions. And Mm -hmm. for me, it's important to retain the original intent of what I was feeling or what I wanted to express at the time. And so I've learned to accept where it lands. Uh, and it's funny, in the preface to the book, I do talk about some of these poems. Um, I refer to to many of these poems as uh, objects in space. Uh, some of them are perhaps bright and very clear, and some of them are like brown dra- uh, brown dwarfs, those planets that couldn't make up its mind whether it wanted to be a planet or a star. And they find themselves right in the, in the middle. Um, and the more that I tried to revise some of them, I found that uh, – the original intent just wouldn't yield. So I I learned that um, I have to let them go and um, have to accept that this is where they're going to be. So um, even though I I do revise a lot, I am very keen on not changing uh, the center of of what I really want the poem to be.
1: All right. Do you think... You were meant to be a poet. And these questions are fun.
0: (laughs) 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 I've been asking them for five years. Yeah. So, they're fun to you. Yeah, fun they're to fun me. to me. They are. Well, you know, these are questions I don't, I don't ask
1: myself sometimes. I mean, I have my assumptions, but, but then to say it out loud is a different experience, right? Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying yourself. I'm glad you're here.
2: Yes, thank you.
1: Uh, meant to be a
2: poet. This is interesting. Um, you know, I said earlier that, uh, I didn't think, uh, writing poems was something I was supposed to be doing yet. Writing was something I was supposed to be doing. And, um, but with that, I, I'm thinking actually of my mother. Uh, I did mention my early experiences being connections to the Bible. Yeah. And, uh, although my name is Wayne David Hubbard, I was always called David growing up because of a junior
0: yeah. and,
2: uh, the name David, I was always Told was uh, the meaning is beloved, and my mother used to always used to tell me the story of King David, who was a warrior poet, and so maybe she was uh, planting those seeds <laughs> way earlier than I ever realized. So, um, you know, I I, I never really uh, woke up and said uh, this is exactly how I'm meant to be in the world, and even now I I'm sometimes on the fence. But, the, you know, the poems are unmistakable. The book is, is a book of poetry collection, so by definition I'm a poet. But was <laughs> I meant to be? Uh, well, <laughs> if I was destined to be, it, it was uh, because I guess I'm, I'm following that dark star, right? It,
1: it's, it's where right. it's leaving me to be. I have to accept mm-hmm. that. All right, then. What surprises you most? about being a poet, and even if you don't want to use that, that, that title, what has surprised you most about writing? What surprised me most about writing, I was just trying
2: to answer this question a few years ago. Um, I would have thought it was the expression of the writing itself, which I was always so intent on. Now regardless of whether or not I was showing it to anyone, it was very important for me to try to put words down and pick capture images as clearly as I could. However, with the past few years of actually publishing a book and two books, what has surprised me most has been the response and the feedback that writing has brought back into my life. Because I, I have gone through these poems, you know, these poems were written in the dark. maybe they would have never seen the light of day. And to hear other people connect with the poems, in some cases, as I originally intend, but very often, hearing them see things and respond to ideas that were maybe latent there that I had no idea I was writing all this time has been very surprising and very enlightening. And, uh, it's been life-changing in a way, the community that I have learned to connect with, uh, through writing has been tremendous. The feedback, the help, the support from other writers and, and readers. That's been really cool. And, um, way more than I ever thought was possible. I've been very, very grateful uh that I, I did find the love and encouragement to uh come out of the dark. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: because yes, like that. That,
2: you know, a lot of my friends a lot of my friends they knew I was writing all this time. Uh mm-hmm. that part wasn't a secret, but uh other people was always kinda of like the no fly zone that thankfully I'm getting
0: over.
1: <laughs> right. So <laughs> right. You know, we've almost reached the end of our poetic journey. But before you go, would you favor us with one final poem?: Well, thank
2: you. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I've really enjoyed uh, I've really enjoyed having this talk with you today, so I've, thank you so much for the opportunity. The poem that I would like to end on is a poem called "How I Might Be Spectacularly Wrong." This poem is another byproduct of, uh, the pandemic. The personal experience was me actually getting COVID myself and this me in February of 2020 before we even realized what a pandemic was. Uh, but through that, um, I got a lot of support and a lot of care and I knew something significant had happened and the best I could do was try to write a poem about that experience. Um. It's also a play on words, uh, there's a few moments and some twists and turns, but they're references to nature and there is an, a nod to a poet by the name of Kabir, who is a a mystic poet, kind of in the same lineage as Rumi, but lesser known and, uh, his works have been very impactful for me over the years. Uh, how I might be spectacularly wrong. If I leave now, my changes will not be saved. And if I stay, I may grow forgetful like a fish in the sea still thirsty. If mercy mixed with turmeric and honey faced something like clouds, how will I know when I've had enough to drink? First, I might imagine a slumbering bee swathed in frozen night and clover dreams. Next, I could lose the proper question moments before my turn to ask it. Then a thought would bloom of how I might be spectacularly wrong on the nature of flowers, the mystery of nectar, and other graces ever arriving ahead of me. Thank you
1: oh nice you know david writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons some write primarily to speak a message to their audience others write because to stay silent is not an option why do you write i'm glad that you mentioned silence silence is very
2: important this gets back to our original question of what is poetry I spoke earlier about how writing was always my voice. Um, but silence is something that I've learned to grow very comfortable with. Uh, two experiences specifically taught me that I lived in Japan for a year when I was in the military and that was a very profound experience. Uh, the people and friends that I met and the places that were so beautiful, I was introduced to that taught me how to be quiet. And the second was living in the desert. I lived in the Middle East and also in the Mojave Desert for a combined total of three, uh, almost four years. And the silence there has been my teacher. And I feel even though uh, I might be in the middle of Times Square, I I carry some of that silence inside of me. Mm -hmm. The core of why I write is to make something out of this silence, make something out of this experience, this unique human experience very specific in time and place and can never be repeated again. Whether it's important or whether it's trivial, it's here and it's mine. And, and uh, by writing it's the way that I can claim it. Um, that's really a privilege and an opportunity and something that I'm I'm very grateful for.
1: All right. Very nice. Where can listeners find your work? I have a website,
2: um, my website is Wayne And the two books that we've been discussing are available uh, on Amazon but also uh, my latest collection, uh, Death Birds of the Broken Clockwork Universe, can be found uh, through Atmosphere Press and other places that books are sold online. Uh, but I'm also available on social media, um, W David Hubbard and I'm very glad to get in touch with anybody who has interest in a love for poetry and science and education and all these very interesting, fun things that uh, are important in my life.
1: What's next for you? Where do you go from here creatively? (laughs) Oh, I
2: ask myself this every single day I wake up. it's an adventure, you know, the more and the more I try to guess what's going to come next, uh, the less accurate that I am. Uh, certainly, um, I'm very, uh, very fortunate and I'm having a lot of fun. I do think another book is in the works. Um, I certainly have a lot more poems that I would like to uh, publish and get out there also other kinds of writing. I do have, uh, essays I would like to put that out there. And, um, have other interests too, that are all creative in nature. But for me, uh, whatever I do, whatever I choose to build, create, I, they're all kind of connected from the same central source of, of wanting to, uh, build and and make something of value out of, um, the love that I have for the people, places and things around me. So, um, wow. it'll be a surprise, but we can reasonably <laughs> say that the books are going to be involved. <laughs>
1: All right, all right. Well, I want to thank you for gracing us with your presence. I enjoyed listening to you. And the thing that I felt is that you don't sound, maybe because it's the newness, and I'm not saying that you're brand new, nothing like that, I'm not saying that, but you don't sound jaded. And I think that's so beautiful.
2: Oh, wow. Well, I, I can never give back as much as I have received. That's something that I yes. really believe. And, uh, boy, I've had my moments, let me tell you. So it's not... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm but, sure. you know, it's uh, I w- I'm happy to uh, accentuate the positive and, mm-hmm. um, you know, give back as much as, as I possibly can um, in w- whichever form is meaningful and value to others.
1: Well, I think you have a bright future writing poetry or whatever you write you know you're a superstar so oh thank you continue doing what you're doing you know your work is wonderful enjoyed hearing it because again those pieces were touching very touching all right that's all i'm going to say but thank you again thank you so much michael (laughs) all right all right thank you all right all right very nice very nice all right (laughs) okay everyone We've reached the end of the journey again. But as I share with you every episode, let poetry ringed somewhere throughout the land. Good night. Good night, David. All right, everybody. Good night. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.